Uh, we're going through First John. You can go ahead and open up to First John five, and let me pray, and then we're gonna we're gonna start at verse fourteen. Actually, I'm gonna read thirteen before we, but um, we're starting at fourteen for the text today. So let me let me pray, and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for today. We thank you for this gift that you have given us of prayer, that we can come to you and tell you what's going on in our life and um, make intercession and ask for you to come and move. And so, Lord, I thank you for this gift that you've given us in prayer. And, Lord, I I pray that you would help us as we see this text here, um, learn more about what it means to come to you in confidence and pray big thoughts and pray big things that you would you would answer these things because you're an awesome God who is amazingly huge that can answer anything we can ask or dream of. And so, Lord, I pray that you would you would come now and move in our hearts and and call us towards repentance where we need repentance. Um, come and comfort us. And Lord, if there's anyone here who hasn't put their faith in Christ, who doesn't walk with you, who maybe prayed a prayer when they were six, but knows they're not a believer because they don't walk with you, Lord. I pray for any of us now who need the Holy Spirit to come and move in our life, that you would do that now as we open up your word. God, I thank you so much for um, the ability and the gift to be able to stand here and, and preach and, and talk about Jesus. Um, and I just pray, Lord, that you would help me be faithful to the text and faithful to this church as we, as we look at this, this text this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, we're in First John, and this, like I said, this is the last, the last time we're going to be doing it. So, what's going to be coming, just to kind of give you a heads up, over the next couple weeks, for sure, is next week I'll be talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, kind of a, uh, a Remedy Church position on the Lord's Supper. About a year and a half ago, we did a Remedy Church position on baptism um, during the summer. And then next week, we'll be doing that on the Lord's Supper. It's just something I've been wanting to do for a while. And as we're ending a book, it's a perfect timing before we start another. Um, as well as the week after that, um, we're going to be doing a giving sermon, but it's not your typical giving sermon. I've never done one just, just on giving. It's not your typical giving sermon where it's just like, come on, guys, get it together. You stink. It's one of those like awesome, like everything's going well. Here's some challenges for the future. This is how we get to be uh, blessings to the city kind of, kind of giving sermon. So I'm excited about doing that. That'll be on the last Sunday in November. And then after that, we'll start something new going into December. Um, so here's the breakdown of the text, just so you can kind of understand the breakdown of the text. Um, there's an opening that John's going to do about prayer, and he's going to have two things he's going to talk about in prayer. The first one's going to be 1415, verses 1415. The next aspect is going to be in 1617. After that, he's going to go into an 18 through 21, or really 18 through 20, some confidences that we have in Christ, um, three confidences, and then he concludes with verse 21. So couple things about prayer, three confidences, and then a conclusion. And I got to get going if we're going to actually do all that. So um, let me read the text. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read 13 so you can kind of see the flow of thought and, and as we go. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will... He hears us, and we know that He hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that are not, that not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. 
All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in the eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. So, we start in verse 13 with confidence. And he's telling us in verse 13, In this I'm writing to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. So there's an idea here in 13. And this is really the theme verse of 1 John, um, the whole entire letter. If you're here for the first time and you want to know what's the point of 1 John, he tells us in 1 John 5.13, This is why I'm writing, so that you who are Christians can know that you have eternal life. And over the course of the book, he's given us tests that we can, we can look at and look at our lives and see if we have eternal life. One is love. If we, and this is really why we chose the book and went into it, is because we as a church... Um, as we go through books, we look at books and say, where's, where can we improve as a church? And one that I thought we could definitely improve in is this issue or this aspect of love that we are pretty theological. We know a lot about the Bible, but we can be a lot more loving. And so this is one of the tests that John says for you to know that you're in the faith is that you're a loving person. You have a heart that wants to reach out to brothers and non-Christians, the people that haven't put their faith in Christ yet, and be loving towards them. And if you have that, if you have a pattern of love towards others, that's one way to know that you're in Christ. The second one is righteousness. If you have a pattern of wanting to kill sin, not necessarily jumping off into to sin and just living a life of um, debauchery or whatever you want to call it, that if there's a pattern of wanting to see your life not be filled with sin, that's another test to know that you're in the faith. And the last one is doctrine, that there's truth, that there are some things that you have to believe about Jesus. You can't say that all roads lead to heaven. You have to say Jesus is the only way to, to know Christ and, or to know God. And there's, there's more other things, but basically those are the three tests. And we look at those things and we say, am I in the faith or not? And he's saying, you can know based on these three tests. And he says here, this is an amazing thing, because he kind of takes this idea of confidence in the faith and starts connecting confidence in prayer. In 13, he says, we know that we have eternal life, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. So we know we have confidence in the fact that we're in Christ, and then he connects that with prayer, that we have, as Christian Christians, an amazing level of confidence before God in prayer. It's not arrogance. It's not arrogance. It's because we are his children that we have an amazing amount of confidence before him that whenever we go to him, we can pray huge prayers. You know, there's usually a couple reasons why we don't do that. Um, one is there's just not a pattern of praying. Like, I just don't think some of us don't have a pattern. We, we're so self-focused uh, or, or forgetful or lazy or whatever that we just don't... If, if, we were to, if I were to take a poll, like, who's satisfied with their prayer life? Um, very few of us would raise our hands. So I think most of us just don't have a pattern of prayer. And if we don't have a pattern of prayer, we'll never develop this confidence that we have. There's a second reason, though, and I think this is probably more, maybe this kind of connects to the first, is that most of us, because of our sin in our life, feel like we're hypocrites as we go to God and try to pray confidently. Because we have all this pattern of sin, and we're like, if I go to God, I mean, I've got all this junk I've got to deal with. He's going to see as me as a big some hypocrite trying to come to him and ask for these massive things that he would do in our life, that he would work and he would move and he would change my life and he would save the, my spouse or my, my, my family or whatever, or 
that he would use me to do great things. And so it's like, I can't pray those things. I got this huge amount of prayer, the sin in my life. And really all I got to do is just right now is just come and confess. It's confession time again. And I can't pray these, these huge prayers. Um, I think those are the two reasons why we don't do that. But John doesn't seem to be um, swayed by something like that. He's already told us over and over that if you're in sin, just in, in, in horrible sin, then you're probably not a Christian. And so sin isn't a reason that keeps him. And he knows. I mean, we all know that we, we're going to sin continually as we work out our sanctification. And, and it, that's not like a, well, I'm going to sin continually so I can just keep doing it. It's not like a license to sin. It's a reason to, because of the fact that I have confidence in Christ, I'm going to press in and not sin. And because now I have confidence in my belief that I know I have faith, he's saying we can have assurance in our prayers, we can have confidence in our prayers as we approach to pray amazingly huge things. Now, what is prayer? What is prayer? Um, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. Prayer, I love this, is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Um, pretty concise, but pretty awesome prayer. And I know it's kind of... Um, Funny to hear it in those words, but prayer is an offering up of our desires to God. So the things that we desire, we offer those up to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Now, um, there's kind of an idea here where um, some of us don't pray because we don't think it necessarily changes things. We don't think it really does anything. And there's some kind of skeptical um, questions that people can ask, especially people in what would be the reform camp. Um, if God's going to do it anyway, then why do I even have to pray? Like, I can't change it if it's going to happen, so why even pray? And they can say, if God ordains everything and he plans everything from eternity past, it's always going to come to pass. Well, then what's the point in praying? Um, and the answer is that God has predestined something to happen, yes, but it's not going to happen without prayer. You're like, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. How's that supposed to work? Because he's also ordained that we pray. He's ordained that we would pray, and he takes as we pray. He's ordained that we would do it, and he takes that as we pray, and then things happen. So your prayers, you can have confidence in the fact that your prayers really do change things. They really make things happen, because the way he set up the universe is, when you pray, that is the thing that causes him to answer and move. And he's just ordained the prayer, and that's okay that he's ordained the prayer. And we don't have to, we don't have to understand of it, uh, all of it. We can say there's mystery in it. Um, one pastor said this, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but getting God's will done on earth, getting God's will done on earth. Um, John Piper, t talking about prayers, prayer, once said this, um, you don't know what prayer is for. Uh, uh, this is an amazing thought if you've never heard this before. You don't know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. You don't know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. You'll never appreciate and engage in prayer to the degree that we should until we realize that our life is war. We're in the, in the armed services of God. We're in the infantry and we're in the battlefield called life and bombs are going around all around us. There's, there's attacks on us continually. And so there's, there's people, there's really Satan and demons, planning on attacking you continually. You are in war and you don't know what prayer is for until you realize life is war. So he says, 
Further, he says, prayer isn't just a, a picking up a phone call and having a gentle conversation. It's more of a wartime walkie-talkie where we are asking God, the Father, to bring all the provisions and supplies that we need to come to our aid. And here's the best news, best news of it all. Prayer means um, that He is an amazingly good Father who loves to give good gifts to us. And so we're not beggars. Um, we're not beggars asking God to come and please help us. We are children of a great father who loves to give his children what we need. And so prayer is huge. It isn't just some kind of thing maybe I can or can't do. We are in war. And if we don't see ourselves day by day walking around in war, then we probably won't have confidence in in prayer and we probably won't even do it. And so here we want to see a couple aspects of prayer in in 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. Um, It says this, and just... Just note the, the ideas of what he's saying um, in 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. This is the absolute confidence, not arrogance, but confidence we have towards God. That if we ask anything according to the will, according to his will, he hears us. And this idea of hearing isn't just that he hears it and he st- starts debating. Like John's idea is he hears us in that he's going to answer. Like this is when he hears, this is connoting the idea that he plans on answering. And then he says further. And we and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests that we have asked of him. So here's the first idea. This first aspect of prayer that I want you to see is that we have major confidence in coming to God in prayer. We have major confidence confidence and coming to God in prayer. That's what 14 and 15 are wanting us to see, that we can come to him and that he hears us. Now, there is that little caveat there in in the end of 14, according to his will. This is from the Lord's prayer. Our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth. So when we pray, we do need to pray within the will of God. Um, Whenever we ask God for things, they have to be within the will of God. Now, let me just kind of take a little sidestep here and and make it really applicable to us, Remedy Church. Um, Because this is, I can go any number of directions here when I say anything you ask, he's going to hear it and answer if it's in the will of God. And we can go to all kinds of ideas. But let me just kind of narrow it down for us of what I think are good prayers for us as Remedy Church to pray. Um, let me read a verse to you in, in 2 Peter 3, nine. And remember that the context here that I'm wanting you to say is that anything you ask, He will give to you. In 2 Peter 3.9, this is what He says. So we want to pray things that are according to the will of God. We want to ask God to do things that are according to His will. Listen to this. This is something that's according to the will of God. 2 Peter The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient to you. Listen to this. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's desire is that none should perish and that all should reach repentance. Now, I know we can talk about 2 Peter and what that really means theologically, but let's just look at it, what it says. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the will of God. 
so you can have confidence in approaching God and praying this massive prayer. God, you desire none to perish. You desire that all would be saved. I'm praying right now that all would be saved. You would not be out of the will of God by praying a huge prayer like that. And I think this is a a very applicable text for us at Remedy. I think it's good for us to maybe start finding ourselves praying more and more, God, save people around me. I want to see salvation around me. All right, let me read you another one. Um, This is Romans. This is Romans. And this is going to give us a little bit maybe better understanding of how salvation can happen around us. This is Romans 10, um, 14 through 17. Listen to this. But how are they to call on him and whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him and whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. All right, so... We just said in 2 Peter that a good prayer for us to pray that's according to the will of God is that God, save people. Save people around me. Well, listen to this transition in Romans. We're going to go backwards here and let you see something. All right? We want God to save people around us. Look at this little steps of how people are going to get saved around us. Let's go backwards. Faith comes through hearing. All right? So we want people to get saved. They want people to have faith in Jesus. It comes through hearing. Look at, um, look at verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent. So we know that they need to hear. In order for them to hear, someone has to be sent to them. This is more ideas on how we can pray. All right, if they need to hear, that means I need to preach to them. How can I preach to them? I need to be sent. And let's look at verse 14. Go up a little bit. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So if we're sent, that means we have to preach. And look at the next part. And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So if, if I'm sent, then I have to preach. If I have to preach, that means I have, I have to go there and call them to belief. And how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? So I'm going to go there because I'm sent. I'm going to preach the gospel. And as I preach the gospel, then they'll believe. So a good prayer for us to pray is as we're saying, God, please save people. We can also pray for ourselves to actually be sent to preach the gospel to people so that they would believe. This is a good prayer for us to believe. I mean, a good prayer for us to pray. Um, I used to, I used to pray like this. I used to pray before I, maybe before I got all theological. And I'm not saying being theological is bad. There's a clear balance that God calls us to be theological. He wants us to be um, deep into his wording, knowing him and studying theology. But I, I, something happened to me that as I got into more theology, I found myself praying kind of less and less big prayers. Um, I remember whenever I was at Charleston Southern, um, before I went to seminary, and we had a, a Wednesday prayer group. Uh, about four or five of us would get together every Wednesday at 7, and we would pray. Um, all of us were kind of involved in ministry at, in different places, and so we would pray for each other. And there was one time where at Charleston Southern, they had a Wednesday chapel that day, the convocation they called it, and we knew this kind of... Um, really gifted speaker was coming in. God seemed to be kind of all over him wherever he was going. We knew he was coming in. And so we said, hey, let's pray for him today and let's pray for chapel um, because most of us will be there today. And so we said, what should we pray? We started, we kind of talked about it for a second. And we said, let's pray for 50 people to be saved today at chapel. 
Like, that's huge. 50 people to give their life to Jesus. And we're like, all right. So we, we got down our faces and we just cried out. Maybe, you know, ignorant as that may sound, got down our faces and we prayed specifically in numbers. God, we pray that 50 people would come to know Jesus today as this guy preaches your word this morning. So we all go to chapel that day and the guy's preaching and man, it was, he, God was clearly moving and he was calling people. And so I just, I didn't even want to look because I was too nervous to, to, to get let down. So I just closed my eyes and as he starts the invitation, I'm just sitting there praying and I'm like, God, I'm not going to look. I'm just going to keep praying right now. While I hear him calling people and I was like, God, just save people. Call people down to yourself. Just save them. I'm just, I keep my head down the entire time until he finally says, okay, we're done. And I look up and just a ton of people are in front of me. And I start counting. And I start counting. I, I mean, that's the first thing we're going to do. We just prayed for 50, right, that morning. And I count and I count and I count. And I promise you, I am not lying. There were exactly 50 people down there giving their life to Jesus. Exactly 50. And I... I just kind of look over and, and I don't know what happened. I really don't know what happened. And I'm not saying um, that this is some major outlying sin in my life, but I just know that I used to pray these much bigger, bolder prayers. And it seems to be the text here is saying we have confidence to go to him and say, God, move. And I'm just wondering what happened? What, what happened here? One guy said, um, I know that we can call, you know, we can say God elects people and whoever God's elected, they're the ones that are going to get saved. And he said, he said, I believe that. Um, but he said, <laughs> people seem to get elected a whole lot more around me as I, as I tell them about Jesus and pray that they would get saved. And it, I think that's pretty true. And we can hold to that and just say, well, they're going to get elected if God elected them. But they seem to be get elected a whole lot more faster if we're sharing the gospel with them and praying that they would. Now, here's a pretty amazing thing. I want you all to see this. Um, First of all, it says that we know that he hears us and we know that we can have this. Um, But look at the middle of 15. It says we know that we have the requests that we have of him. Now, you can kind of blow by that. And I did until commentators really thank the Lord. We have these guys that are way smarter than us point things out to us. And they said this. Notice the we have is not we will have future tense. But it's intentionally present tense. That's pretty amazing. We have, and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, and we know that we have the requests that we have asked. Can we just kind of pause and think of the implications of that? Let's just, let's just stop and think. Right now, right now, if you pray for anything, right now, if you pray for it, you have it. If you close your eyes right now and ask God for something because you're his child, you have it. Present tense. Does that not kind of like, wait a second. Wait, that kind of takes me back a second and says, if that's true, wow, I should be asking for a whole lot more stuff. Now, I am aware of the clause in 14 according to his will. I am totally aware of that. I'm not discounting the fact that he says it has to be according to his will. Not discounting this by any means, but let's honestly be um, a little bit, um, kind of just lay it out on the table here. Are your prayers usually that would be things that are out of the will of God? Or perhaps that it's just that we're not praying and asking God? I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's where we're just launching up these, 
huge prayers that are probably out of the will of God. Just make me an astronaut. I can go to Mars and spend some time there and be famous. I don't think that we're, we're praying these weird kind of things like that. I think most of us are praying things that are in the will of God. And I think the reason why we don't have taking a hold of this present tense, we have the request that we have, is because we're probably just not praying and asking. James Boyce says, prayer is not so much getting God to pay attention to our requests as it is getting our requests in line with His perfect and desirable will for us. So when we pray things that are in the will of God, we have them. And so this seems so like daunting and huge and like, can I really do that? Why don't you just try? There's no reason not to try. Verse 14 and 15, and John and Jesus seems to be saying, please come to me confidently and just do it. And let's just see what I do. Let's just see what God, the one who owns everything, the vast resources and provisions of all the world would do. I think that that's probably the safer thing is just to start praying huge things rather than kind of hang back and maybe launch up some some semi-big ones and say, we'll see how those land. I think that the, the gist of this is to pray big things. So application for us, I think, for us here at Remedy is um, mission. I think that one of the things that we could start praying for in a much larger capacity is mission. I, uh, I was invited to go to Columbia this past week, and there's some churches in the state that are wanting to be, kind of like we are here in Rock Hill with some other churches, really intentional about being kingdom-minded and building the kingdom. We know there's 70,000 people in Rock Hill. If I'm being generous, I think about half of those people are involved in church, and that doesn't necessarily mean Christian. But um, over the state, there's been evidence that's being shown to us that there is an increase in what people that would call themselves agnostics or atheists and a decrease in people that would call themselves churchgoers, and that doesn't necessarily mean Christians. So while 12 years ago, most people would say, maybe somewhere in the high 80s would say they're Christians, now we're in the lower 70s, and we're not winning the battle. No matter how many churches we're planting in South Carolina, we are losing ground as Christians. And I'm just talking about the state of South Carolina. This is the place that we can kind of circle around and say, God, we're responsible for this, for sure. This is where we live. And so we, we get together and we're saying, this is the truth. So what can we do? Like as churches in the state, we got to start partnering together, being way more intentional about the mission way more intentional about being kingdom-minded and not trying to build churches and make them bigger, but share the gospel intentionally, partnering with other churches, putting together resources that we have to be far more outreaching into the community and really start having opportunities where every person in the city and every person in the state has repeated opportunities to see and hear the gospel and that they would respond. It's a huge undertaking. I mean, a huge undertaking that we want to see happen in the state and in our, in our city. And so we're praying about this. And I think the big, one of the big application points for us as a church is to have that kind of mentality continually on our mind. As a church, praying for the city, praying for the church, and praying for ourselves. Praying for the city to come to know Christ, praying for the church to be used by Him, and praying for ourselves individually to not find ourselves kind of Oh yeah, this week I'm supposed to share Jesus. But we wake up on mission, remembering verses 14 and 15. I have confidence today that I can just kind of throw huge seeds of the gospel around to all the people I know. And let's just see what God does. God, save them as I talk about Jesus today. Use me and let me see them get saved. That's the kind of confidence He wants us to walk in. So week in, week out, I, I kind of exhort us towards this. 
Week in, week out, I ask you to look around and think about this. Um, and I'm asking you, are there people around you that need to hear the gospel? And I think maybe I'm asking that in the wrong way. I'm going to start rephrasing this. I'm not going to say, are there people around you? Because of course there are. I'm going to start asking more of, who are you passionate about? Like, if you're passionate about somebody, you're going to talk to them. Who are you feeling a call towards mission about? Who is it? Start identifying that particular people group in your city, whether it's teenagers, whether it's college people, whether it's young single moms, whether it's, you know, older people that are more seasoned in their life, but not necessarily walking with Jesus. Who has God given you a passion and a mission towards and start praying that God would do amazing things in your life to start reaching them in the city? Um, I was listening to a sermon, not necessarily on this, by Francis Chan, and this is what he was saying. He said, when I read, this is classic Francis Chan, when I read this book, I just don't, you know, that's how he does it. He goes, when I read this book, um, I start thinking, maybe we're not, maybe we're not doing the things that, that they say, we just need to get alone with this book and say, whatever it says, I want to do it. And he was using an illustration that I thought was just amazing. He said, um, I look at Paul and I look at the apostles and whenever they're saying and whenever they're doing things, Paul's being shipwrecked for the faith and, and eventually dies. Timothy, he's doing these things. And if I kind of insert myself in the book of Acts, Paul's being shipwrecked and, get, and Timothy's doing this. And Fudd, he leverages all of his time and money to start reaching people. They would just be like, okay, big deal. And if I say, leverage all your time and money to reach people, you think, wow, that's a huge calling. But if we kind of insert ourselves into the people, it's just like, yeah, that's what they did. So maybe we can kind of pull ourselves out of 21st century mindset and start saying, wow, they just live different lives than us. That's just normal. Leverage all of our time and money to start reaching people. All of our time and money. That seems to be the pattern there. and we're, That's not very impressive comparative to that book of Acts. And I was pretty, pretty taken back by how we could step it up. So I'm... I'm I'm in my house this past Thursday, and this is just kind of what I'm saying. I'm in my house this past Thursday, and my wife, Christy, had um, come home. It was about 8.30 at night, and uh, Sarah was in the car with her. And so I hear um, what I think is the garage door, but I feel like they're home. And, and all of a sudden, they're in the driveway. <laughs> my phone rings, and they're like, Fudd, we're home. We're outside, but the doors are locked, and we're in the driveway. And we want to get out. I'm like, what? And they said, yeah, there's, a, uh, there's, there's somebody laying in the yard. This is 8.30 at night. It's dark. Almost 50 degrees by then. And I'm like, what? Uh, I'm coming out there. So I go out there. They, they don't, they're scared to get out of the car. And I walk up. I'm, I'm not lying to you. In the corner of my yard, kind of underneath the street light, there's a 20-something-year-old male passed out of sleep in my yard, just laying there. And so I'm like, I, they go inside, and I just kind of walk up to him. I'm not kidding. Like, I walk straight up to him, and I'm standing over him like this. And he's not even moving. And so I'm just like, hey. And he just, you know, one of those kind of funny wake-ups where, you know, like, what's going on and where am I? And I'm like, you're, you all right? I don't even know what to say. You all right? You need any help? Everything okay? And he's like, oh, yeah. And he looks at his phone. He sees the time. He's like, oh, yeah. Okay. I'm like, you need help? Where do you live? Right over here. You need some water? You need something? I'm like, oh, I'm good. And he just kind of walks down the road. Like, and looks like, what happened? Like, who just passes out in a yard at 8.30 at night and takes a nap? In the 50 degree weather. It's just so random. And I'm just thinking, that's exactly, this is exactly what God is calling us towards. There are, there are men and women laying around dead, passed around all of us. And He's just calling us to go up there and have a care in the world to say, Hey, 
Wake up! Here's Jesus. Let me put him in front of you and see if God would be gracious enough to wake him up to the things of Christ. That's what he's calling us all all towards. So we have an amazing confidence to come to God. Now, verse 16 and 17 takes this weird little turn. Um, And when we start thinking about prayer, um, usually as we're thinking about prayer, we're praying for ourselves. We're thinking of all the things that pertain to us. We need a good job or a better job or we need to get a husband or wife. And once we get a husband or wife, we're praying that they would be much different than the way they act or ourselves. Or we're praying that we can pass a test. We're praying that we can pass our class. We're praying that we can uh, make ends meet as a family. Times are tough and our cars are breaking. And we're just kind of praying, praying, praying for ourselves continually. Which is not bad. Not bad at all. John here, as he's writing this, um, wants to push us over towards intercession. John surprisingly speaks of prayers for other people as he's kind of talking about prayer and not ourselves. Boyce... Uh, talking about this says prayer implies responsibility and part of that responsibility is intercession for others intercession for others so while you we'll all have the natural propensity to pray all the kind of laundry list things that are happening in our life he wants to call our attention to remember to pray for other people like what he says if anyone sees his brother his brother committing a sin not leading to death he shall ask god he shall ask and god will give him life so Yes, absolutely. If someone's in sin, this doesn't exclude going towards them and following the things of Matthew 18. Hey, I see the sin in your life. You need to repent. I don't, I, this isn't a good when you said this to your wife or when you said this deal and you're telling me you have these problems. I want to, you know, he's not excluding holding accountable. But there are times where as we're doing those things, you know, we can't, we can't do anything but just kind of retreat back and say, I'm going to keep holding you accountable, but man, I see you in sin, and the sin is not leading to death. We're going to talk about that and contrast it with 17, the sin that leads to death in a minute. But basically, it's just saying, this is not a sin that um, prevents you from attaining heaven. This is not a sin that keeps you from like losing your salvation or, or, or makes you lose your salvation. So we all know and believe that when someone's in sin, we go to them and we present them. First John 1, 9, you confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We have two, one, Jesus, our great advocate. And that's the hope that we hold out. But we also are exhorting them as we're exhorting them to repent. And we certainly don't want to gossip about them. We want to pray for them. We want to pray for them. And that's what John's saying. And the promise is, this is an amazing thing. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. God will grant this guy life. There's a promise behind it. God will give him life. And this is, God will forgive his sin if he repents and restore him into fellowship. So this is an awesome thing. Here's the second thing that I want you to see. The first one is that we have confidence in prayer. And the second one is... If I can find it on my piece of paper here. There it is. Um, there should be a major emphasis on, on intercession in prayer for others in our lives. Our prayers should have a major emphasis of intercession for others. And that's verse 16 and 17. And we have this promise here, which is that God will give him life. That's, that's an amazing thing. Your brother or sister is in is in just horrible, wretched sin. God's promising you that he'll give them life. John Calvin, when he was talking about this amazing promise that we have, said this, such a great benefit, talking about the promises, this benefit of the promise, such a great promise or benefit ought to stimulate us not 
Not a little to ask for our brethren for the forgiveness of sins. Or it should stir us a lot. This great promise should stir us a lot for saying, God, forgive them of their sins. Draw them to repentance. This promise is huge and it should draw us up towards that. Now, let's get into the crazy verse. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. There is a sin that leads to death. And there's four ideas on what this says. I'm going to hit these quick. One is that this is just a heinous sin that a, sin, that a Christian is doing, kind of a premeditated idea that you're in that and you're going to do that. And that um, this is a sin that leads to death, that God will not pardon this sin. That's one idea. The other idea is that this is just apostasy. Someone who's truly a Christian, they let go of it all and they do a sin that leads to death and they lose their faith. And, and I think in 2.19 clearly shows us in First John 2.19 that that's just, there is no such thing as a Christian who was absolutely a Christian and then lost it. Um, 2.19 is clear on that. I'm not going to cover that again. Um, the next idea is that this is from Matthew twelve thirty one. This is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, so this idea of the sin that leads to death is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And the other idea, which is that John switches categories. He's talking about spiritual death um, in the beginning of 16. There's a sin not leading to death, talking about spiritual death, but he just kind of switches categories to physical death in, in the second part of this. And there is a sin that leads to death, like physical death, like, you know, whatever. Um, I don't think that that's the case. I think that, um, and I'm kind of stepping away from some commentaries, but some commentaries do believe, commentators do believe that this is, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is the idea that um, if we reject the working of the Holy Spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit is to draw you to repentance. If, if something happens and you say, the Holy Spirit didn't do that to draw them to Jesus, you're rejecting what is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to call us to repentance. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is saying, you are not trying to call people to Jesus. If we reject what the Holy Spirit is trying to do, bring people to Jesus, then that, I believe that is the sin that leads to death. If it's a complete rejection of Jesus. I'm not going to follow Christ. Um, so there is a sin... That, and this is where it gets really, really weird, okay? And I, I'm just going to admit, I know it sounds weird. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. What? You're telling me that if someone is going to walk, you know, away from, or not even to Jesus, but they're rejecting what the work of the Holy Spirit is, and he's saying, I'm, I am saying, you shouldn't pray for that. You should just let them go. That, that just feels weird. That feels like, what is that going on? All right. Let me try to help us understand what I think this means. This is very confusing. This is a difficult little verse. I don't think that what he's saying is, and there should never have been prayer for them. So clearly, I think there is a... Jesus, all through the Gospels, tells us to pray for our enemies. There's no question that we're supposed to pray for people to get saved. We're supposed to pray for our enemies, pray that they would get saved. There's, there's all kinds of verses that are, that are saying... Pray, pray, pray. And what he's saying is, this, these are the people that are so far away, and, and I'm not necessarily saying you should stop praying for them, but there is a time after you've years and years of poured into them, you prayed and prayed and prayed, and they just continually reject and walk away. There is a sense in where he's saying, you have done everything that you can. It's, it's difficult, I know, but they have, are not going to put their faith in Jesus. Romans 1 clearly shows us that there are people that eventually that God gives them over to their debased mind and lets them have their, their sinful behavior. And that there is no hope. And so, while I, w I would never say don't pray for an unbeliever, I think the gist is that the idea is that you've done so much, you've given your life over to them, and eventually there'll be a time where you, you, you're probably not going to find yourself praying for them. 
I don't know where that line is, and I know it's a confusing verse. That's, that's all I can say. I mean, it's very difficult. But let's go back to this next thing in 17. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. So everything that we do that's wrong is a sin, but there is sin that doesn't lead to death. So the way it doesn't lead to death is that we seek forgiveness and God grants it to us. All right, 18. There's three things I want you to see here. Um, 18, 19. And just notice 18, 19, and 20 has this little preface. We know, we know. We know. So these are, these are three confidences. These are three things that we can absolutely know about ourselves in Christ. Three confidences we have as Christians. Verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. All right. So the first confidence is, is that if we're born of God, then we do not sin. That's just a straightforward way we should think about it. Christians should not sin. If you're a Christian and you are just completely totally in sin when we've talked about this this is willful i'm going to run into sin and then i just don't care then you're probably not a christian there should be conviction and a pulling back of the holy spirit away from what would be those sins christians don't sin habitually willfully yes you will sin but you should never be satisfied with it and you should always seek to kill it now here's an amazing thing look at this awesome part of the end of verse 18 but he, and I just, for time's sake, that's Jesus. And this is the only declaration in the New Testament where it speaks of Jesus with this title, he who is born of God. Um, he who is born of God, that's not talking about us here, protects him. Because clearly there's someone receiving protection, and that's us. And so it has to be Jesus that does that. And I can make the case later if you want to talk about it. But he who is born of God protects him. That's amazing. We don't sin as Christians, because Jesus himself is protecting us. And look at that. And the evil one doesn't touch him. That's a pretty awesome thought. A confidence that we have in Christ is that we are protected by him and we should not find ourselves in sin. Every Christian is protected by Jesus. Every Christian is free from this evil one touching him. Yes, we're tempted, but we have the protection of Jesus Christ to overcome sin. Next one. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole, this is scary, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the second confidence is this, we know that we're from God. That's the first part of 19. We know that we are from God. The second part is ridiculously scary. We live in the world. Satan has some kind of control over the world. Some kind. It says here, the whole world lies in power of the evil one. We know in Ephesians 2, 2, it says the prince of the power of the air is controlling. Like we know from continual verses all over that there's some kind. Now, he doesn't have total control because he didn't create the world. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, together the Trinity in Genesis 1, 1, they create the world. We know that in the end, God has control over the world. But for some season and for some reason, he has given Satan some kind of control in here in the world. The whole world lies in power of the evil one. And we're in it. That's kind of scary. But remember 18. Jesus protects us. And the evil one can't touch us. So the prayer point for us here as we're thinking about this is that he has no prayer over us. We have much reason to pray for confidence. God, please protect me from sin. I know that he cannot touch me if you are protecting me. 
All right, in verse 20, the last thing we know. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. Here's the third one. For us who are Christians, we know and we are in Jesus. We know Jesus. Christian, you, and this isn't just some kind of tertiary, like, uh, I think I know him. This is a, a deep knowledge of knowing. You, Christian, know him deeply, intimately. And not only do you know him, you are in him. These are amazing truths to know. And then he says, just crushing, crushing the Gnostics and all their wrong beliefs about who Jesus was. Um, we know him who is true. We are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God in eternal life. Just destroying any thoughts that the Gnostics have. And it just seems so natural now that the book would end at 20. Right? I mean, that just seems like, what is this last little tag on? And little children, keep yourself in idols. What? I call this the conclusion confusion. I thought it was pretty clever. It is just, what in the world is he doing with this last verse? As a matter of fact, I don't know if you remember, idolatry has never even been talked about in the entire book. Not one time has idolatry been addressed. And he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. So he just destroyed with the last sentence all the people that these, as he calls them in chapter 2, the antichrists who are coming in and trying to destroy the people of God. And he says, because they had a wrong view of Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the one true God, the eternal life. Amen. I think it's all over. And he says, oh yeah, little children. My beloved children whom I love, who he's called them the entire letter. Keep yourself from idols. And this is, though it seems strange, I, in my view, a perfect conclusion to the letter. He hasn't addressed idolatry, but I don't think of idols as, you know, I'm going to get out my stick and my knife and I'm going to carve in this little monkey and I'm going to, like, that's how we kind of think of idols, especially from a long time ago. They fashion a piece of wood and they bow down to whatever it is. Don't think of that in that way. The idea here of idols are false conceptions of God. And he's giving them an admonition to keep themselves away from these false prophets and these idols, these false conceptions of God that these false prophets are preaching to them. Keep yourself away from wrong thoughts about Jesus. Run away from idolatry. Keep yourself from idols, to say it negatively, to say it positively. Keep worshiping Jesus. Great conclusion. Perfect conclusion. Worship Jesus, children of God, worship him, not just in song, but indeed with your entire life. Be willing to give everything away for the cause of Christ and the furthering of his kingdom. Keep yourself from idols. Give yourself over to Jesus. So here's the question I just want to kind of conclude with. As John says, run from idolatry and run towards worshiping Jesus. What are you yourselves giving yourself over to as 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 idols, what are you giving your heart over to? What do you continually find yourself being enamored with by the world? Run from that and run to Christ and worship him. The opposite of Christianity, Peter Kreef says this, the opposite of Christianity is not atheism. 
It's not lack of worship. The opposite of Christianity is idolatry. It's misplaced worship. Keep yourself from idols and worship Jesus. And this is the part I, every week. I mean, every week we get to this part and I, and I call you towards it. Every single week I say, now let's respond. Let's respond to the Word of God and how He's leading you. Let's respond to be obedient. Let's respond with hands raised, hearts lifted. God, would you come and worship with, and help us worship you now? Give us just a glimpse of the things of Jesus. Send your Holy Spirit now and let us respond with great declarations to Christ. Cameron, you can go out. Come on out now. Um, and what I want you to do now for you is just call you towards that. I want to call you towards this. God has come and revealed Himself to you through His Word. He's called you to come and be confident in prayer. He's called for you to come now and think about others and intercede. And He's given you these great confidences that we are in Him and that He is ours. And we know that we don't have to run away from Satan because He protects, Jesus protects us from all the evil ones. We, are in, we know Jesus and we are in Jesus. And He's calling us not to give ourselves over to idolatry, but to give ourselves up to Christ, to worship Him. So as we come together now to respond to God, I just want to say, however He's leading you, whatever He's doing in your heart now, whatever He's showing you, if you need prayer, if you need to think, if you need to read your Bible, or you just want to stand with your hearts and your minds and your thoughts raised to Christ, respond in the way that He is calling you and be obedient. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You so much for today. Thank You for Your Word. Thank you that we can come and we can hear your word to us and that we can respond. Lord, I pray that the conclusion of this would be the declaration of our life. That we would keep ourselves from idolatry and that we would sprint headlong and worshiping Christ with our lives. Hear in song and let this be the fuel that leads us out to worshiping with our lives. And let, as we worship Jesus with our lives, be the fuel that drives us in here. And as we hear your word, worship here corporately. We love you, God. We ask that you would be in the midst of us now and convict us of sin and comfort us now as we worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.